You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. This is the last sermon, actually, today in our series on Micah that we started at the first of the year. And if you haven't been with us or have missed a couple along the way, let me just offer you a brief recap while you're getting to Micah chapter 6. Micah was a prophet in the 8th century who had the unique task of speaking to both the northern and southern kingdom. Israel as a nation had split into the northern and southern kingdom of Israel and Judah, and Micah spoke to both of them. God sent Micah as a prophet to speak to the northern and southern kingdom because on the outside it appeared that both of these kingdoms were thriving. But the reality was on the inside they were rotting to the core. And Micah calls out specific things that are going wrong in both of these kingdoms, both of these communities. And at the same time he warns, as prophets do, of the pending consequences. That there are, there's an invasion coming first by the Assyrian Empire and then next by the Babylonian Empire that really are just an expression of God's judgment that reflects what's go actually happening within Israel and Judah. The, the invasion that's going to happen is merely a mirror image of how corrupt they are inside, how they're falling apart from within. And it's, it was tough getting into Micah. It's, it's, it's dark. Uh, it's challenging. But you'll remember there was the shift as we continued on in the book around chapter 4 that Lent continued into chapter 5 where in the midst of some hard words, Micah also gives to the people this vision of peace. The biblical word we've talked about is shalom, this idea of restoration, of wholeness and flourishing. Micah presents in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the consequences that are coming, this beautiful picture that's on the horizon that will one day eclipse all the bad things that have happened and all the bad things that will happen to Israel and Judah. And he galvanizes, he kind of forges this whole, the vision holds together of what's on the horizon, this picture of Shalom by this figure of a shepherd king that will come from the little town of Bethlehem. This shepherd king will come and will gather the Lord's people one day and lead them into this, the fulfillment of this vision of Shalom, of wholeness, of connectedness, of thriving, of flourishing. And as we talked about last week, we know on the other side of Micah that the one to whom he was pointing to was Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace, our shalom. So that's where we've been in this book. And today we come to the last two chapters, Micah 6 and 7. And in many ways, as we come to the end of God's message through Micah, we sort of kind of come back to where we started. Because for one last time, as you're going to hear, God in the midst of everything that he's laid out, everything he said has happened, everything that he said is going to come, one last time we get to hear the Lord make his case to his people. By now you have those Bibles open, so I invite you to hear from Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It reads, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hears hear, hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you 
up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, Balaam, son of Peor, answered. Remember your journey for Shechem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Really, here at the end, what we have is this amazing lens by which we can appreciate the whole book of Micah. As you heard, as he begins, God calls the mountains and the hills as his witnesses. And the mountains and the hills, if you really stop and think about it, are well suited to serve in this role because they have watched the history of Israel unfold. They have seen firsthand how things have played out over time between Yahweh and his people. The mountains and the hills know who is right and who is wrong in this relationship. And that's really, more than anything else, that's what the heart of all of this, all of it, the whole book of Micah has been about, a relationship. Now, I say this because based upon the initial language here in chapter 6, we might be tempted to read this as just a legal proceeding, where God takes his people to court, naming the mountains and the hills as his jury, and lays out his case for judgment. And again, the language is there for that. But what I want you to notice, and I don't know if you caught it in my reading, is if we really pay attention, though, to what is said and how it is said, what we have here is more than just a formal exchange between the judge and the accused. If you listen really carefully, you will hear this more like a quarrel between a parent and a child. And if I would, a parent and a teenager. In verse 3, listen, in verse 3, our God, our Heavenly Father, you can hear it frustratingly asks his children, right? My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then the Lord outlines three major events in the life of his people. First was when God raised Moses. Aaron and Miriam to lead Israel out of slavery to freedom in the promised land. The second was when Balak, king of Moab, tried to hire Balaam the prophet to curse Israel as they made their way to the promised land. And the third event is when Joshua led the nation of Israel from Shittim across the Jordan, finally stopping in Gilgal in the land of promise. God breaks down the entire Exodus story that we know into these three key narratives in order to make a point. And it's this simple. The father is reminding his child, Israel, I gave you life. I birthed you. I gave you life. And I never left you. I provided for you. I've always been there. I carried you. Every step along the way as your father, I have intervened and saved you time and again from certain disaster, ruin, and complete destruction. But you act like I don't exist. You live like you're on your own. And this harkens back to where we started in Micah, where God calls out 
through his prophet the wanton idolatry of the people. They live as though God doesn't exist. They're worshiping false gods. God goes on, you fight with each other as if it's every person for themselves. And again, this is the second thing we've heard brought up again and again by God through Micah. Not just the idolatry of the people, but their injustice towards each other. Parent makes his case before his teenager. And then we have verse 6 where we see this shift as Micah, catch this, Micah rhetorically assumes the role of Israel. In the voice of Micah, the teenager responds. Micah gives sort of the stereotypical response that Israel has been giving to their father. And I don't know if you caught it. I tried to capture it in my reading, but let me give it to you again. How Israel responds, has been responding to God, is dripping with sarcasm. What do you want from us? Notice how each answer that Israel gives has again, it, it, it kind of moves, it escalates, it goes from the ordinary. What? What do you want? Will the sacrifice, the burnt offering of a calf satisfy you? That's kind of a normal expectation. But then they get outrageous. Oh no, maybe you want thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Is that enough? And finally to the unthinkable. What if we just hand over our firstborn children to you? Will that do? Children always know how to hit their parents below the gut. They always know the place to go. And you'll notice something in terms of how Israel responds to God. Israel, what everything that Israel says is they move from the ordinary to the outrageous to the unthinkable. Really, it's, it's what they, what there's nothing wrong with what they're saying. Because in their infancy, in their childhood, through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, these were all things that Israel had been taught, had been told to offer to the Lord, how to make sacrifices, that there was this a continual system that, yes, your firstborn belonged to, to me. But Israel's throwing it back in God's face in this mocking, sarcastic way. What do you want from me? What do you want from us? What's it going to take to make you happy? What's it going to take to get you off my back, old man? And in verse 8, there's again another shift as Micah steps out of his assumed role speaking for Israel, as he just has. And now he resumes his role as the prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord to Israel. So hear this transition. Israel's kind of throw, thrown it back in God's face. And the father shakes his head. You can picture it, right? You're twisting my words. You're missing the point. You're having a selective memory. You're choosing to forget what's important. Interestingly, in this shift in verse 8, surprisingly, the Lord doesn't point his finger toward Israel and present another list of their moral failings. Notice instead he answers his child. He answers his teenager's mocking question. What do I want? What do I want? What do I require of you? I've shown you. I've shown you what is good. Act justly. Love. Mercy, walk humbly with me. This dialogue that I want you to envision is a father with his teenager. At its heart, really what it's about, and really it's the dispute that all the prophets really express from between God and Israel, is this dispute over the good life. Israel wants the good life. Israel wants the best for themselves. Israel wants to enjoy life. Israel wants to thrive. Israel wants to flourish. Israel wants to prosper. Israel wants to be satisfied. 
What I want you to understand is these were people just like you and me, who in how they were conducting their business affairs, how they were engaging their neighbors, how they were expressing their religion, they were just seeking to experience all they could out of life. What I'm trying to get at here is, with few exceptions, we don't want to paint too broad of a brushstroke. They weren't all sociopaths, right? The people in Israel and Judah weren't all sociopaths indulging in spreading evil for evil's sake. The majority of people were pursuing what was good for them, the best for themselves. And isn't that how we would describe ourselves? Isn't that how we would describe our life's pursuit? Isn't that us? And what's wrong with this? Isn't life supposed to be good? Weren't we meant to experience the good life? Yeah, the Lord wants the same thing. Our Heavenly Father wants what's good for us too. The reality is our desire for good, that desire we have for the good life, is a God-given one from the beginning. From the very beginning, when you think about it, when God created the heavens and the earth, from the second day on, as God created, spoke and created oceans, plants, soil, animals, stars, what does he declare over and over again? It is good. And as the Lord breathes and makes human beings and offers us the canvas of all creation within which to rest and to work, he adds, it is very good. We didn't come up with this desire for life that's good all on our own. We got it from our creator. We got it from the God in whose image that we're made. So then what's the disconnect? What's the, what's the problem? The problem is we think we know what is good on our own. The problem is we believe we can achieve good by ourselves. The teenager, as all teenagers are wont to do, reaches that point where they say to their parents, I've grown up and I want the good life. And the good life is getting far away from you. I want to leave home. I want what's mine. I want what's coming to me. I want what I can get. I can have good life without you. Problem is, by ourselves, what God is trying to say over and over again to his people, through prophets like Micah, is we don't know what is good. We think we do. And like that teenager, oh, I know. But we don't know what is good. Think about this. On our own, right? On our own, when you envision the good life, when we think about it, when we imagine it, when we pursue it, how we see it and define it, whenever we talk about the good life, just you and I, it's always in terms of what we determine will make us happy and satisfied, right? I mean, we aim for a good job to support ourselves. We want a good neighborhood to live in. We'd like good schools for our children to go to. We'd like a good movie on a Friday night, right? We like a good pair of shoes, that's what we want. A good vacation spot. You know what, we want a good return for our money and a, a good solution to that problem we're facing. See what's underneath our understanding of the good life? We live under this, this belief that if we just amass enough good things, then we'll be living the good life. And the sooner we can get it, by the way, the better. The sooner we can get it, the better. Our definition of the good life is the life that enables us to do all the things we want to do. It's the life where you have all the things you ever wanted to have. It's the life where you can go to all the places you ever wanted to go. And I'm going to be honest with you. This vision, this definition of the good life, this works for me. I like this. It sounds perfect. Individually. But this definition of the good life never 
works corporately. Because I, I'm not alone in this life and neither are you. We're in this life, we're sharing this world together. And what we see through Micah is that the reality for Israel and Judah, the reality for us is what we create, what we experience apart from God is not good. Micah's lament, think about this, throughout his book was that the people of Israel and Judah had succumbed to a vision of the good life that was all about what's good for me rather than what's good for us or what's good for someone else. And that's why the prophet subsequently calls out on the Lord's behalf for five chapters, the aftermath of this kind of definition of the good life, the aftermath of such a narrow, self-centered, self-serving definition of what is good. And remember where we've been, what's happening in Israel and Judah? Equity and fairness have become eclipsed by power and influence. Might makes right. Israel and Judah pride themselves on their personal and national accomplishments, even though such success has been achieved through the exploitation of others. The people are devouring each other. I mean, Micah literally says that. Do you remember that from chapter 1? They're like cannibals. They're literally devouring each other. The rich are getting richer, while the haves are forcibly becoming the have-nots. Meanwhile, the poor just continue to remain empty-handed on the sidelines. My friends, we may live at a different time than Micah, but the quest for the good life, how we frame it, how we pursue it, hasn't changed all that much. Our definitions, our practices, and our outcomes tend to look the same as theirs. And this is because notions of good with the self at the center aren't big enough to nourish souls or help communities thrive. Notions of good with the self at the center are not big enough to help nourish souls or help communities thrive. I mean, think about this. No one ever searches for the bad, right? No one ever goes, no, I'm looking for the bad life. Does anyone know I can find the bad life? Because that's what I'm into, the bad life. No one ever searches for the bad. But when our understanding of good is what is good for me, it always leads to what is bad for someone else. When our definition of the good life is limited to what is good for me, it's always going to lead to what is bad for someone else. One person's prosperity always gets built on the back of another's pain and suffering. I mean, that's another way to think of the problem of sin. We talk about that a lot in church and we try to think of different ways to describe what's the problem of sin. And right here we've got another way to think of it. The problem of sin is divorcing our sense of good from God. Every chapter of scripture and every chapter of our lives shows this desire for the good life never leaves us as human beings. We're driven by it, we're motivated by it, we hunger for it, we long for it. It never leaves. The thing is, is somewhere along the way, we convince ourselves we can get it apart from God by taking the search into our own hands. And when we start to convince one another that we know what is good and what is bad, when we start to tell ourselves, oh, we know what's good, we know what's bad, we take ourselves right back to the garden, don't we? Right back to that tempting question, do you remember it? What do you need God for? What do you need God for? We take ourselves right back to the disastrous consequences that followed, that now become repeated in our lives. We end up taking the good things from God and making them into God's idols. 
And my friends, when material possessions, when intellectual and emotional experiences, when even human relationships are turned into false gods, the very good things from God become curses rather than blessings in our life. They never ultimately fulfill us. They always take more than they deliver. Lesser gods means lesser goods, and we will never be satisfied with a lesser good than God. It's into this kind of world, this kind of mentality, God called Micah to speak. God, Micah declares, defines what is good. All that is good flows from the Lord, our Heavenly Father, who is good. That which is good reflects the image of the one in whom we have been made. And that which is good mirrors his desires and purposes for all creation. Isn't it interesting when we go back to the beginning, the only time God suggests things are bad, not good in the garden, is when? When we are alone. When we exist by ourselves and for ourselves. Understand, God's vision of the good life is so much bigger than what's good for me. For God, the quest for the good life never ends until the good life we're after includes seeking both the well-being of others and the thriving of this world. From start to finish, Micah's word to the people is not about breaking holy laws. Isn't that interesting? Micah's word to the people is not about breaking holy laws as much as it is about the breaking of God's heart. And God's heartbreak stems from seeing how his people are treating each other. How they're treating his creation. And therefore, Micah says, here come the consequences. The consequences that we call the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is really our Heavenly Father just letting things, our choices and our actions apart for him, play out without his intervention. Isn't that what we do as parents with teenagers? When the teenager comes to you and says, I want out. I want to be on my own. I got this. I want you out of my life, out of my business. The smart, brilliant play as a parent is to go, okay, here you go. But then all of a sudden you get that phone call, right? Help. Um, uh, I got a problem here. Um, this, I don't know what to do here. And you go, well, wait a second. You just said you had this. You said you got, uh, yeah, um, that's what happens here, right? The consequences are coming. God is allowing us to experience what life is like apart from him. That's what's happening to Israel and Judah. But now all of a sudden this trouble starting to come. As things are not working out, as Israel finds itself in a mess of its own making, suddenly it's calling home. Suddenly they remember where they live, right? Suddenly, they know who their father is. Dad, hey, what's up? And this sounds like a good first start, but I want you to see even deeper what the problem is for Israel and Judah here, why Micah reflects it the way he does when he speaks for them, is this sounds like a good start, but they're still operating from the premise. They just need a little help, but they can get the good life for themselves. And that's the thing. When you live as though you can get the good life for yourself, that you can manage it by yourself, you end up living as though you can manage God. When you don't understand that there is no good life apart from God, when you still think you can do it on your own, you're going to try to manage God too. And it sounds great what Israel says here, but it's dripping with sarcasm because the people are still trying to manage God. Notice, the people never ask. Did you notice this? They never ask how their lives might be changed. 
Instead, what Micah reflects is they focus on how they can do something to satisfy the Lord. And my friends, what I want you to understand is like Israel and Judah, we can and we often treat God like a consumer. Someone to be managed. We got into a little bit of a jam, so we assume we have to bargain with dad to get out of trouble. Our posture is to negotiate with God to fix the problem for us. And so we engage in some ritual, right? We practice a little religion. If I pray the right prayer, I haven't been praying in a while, but I'm going to pray now. And if I get this right, Dad, will you help me out? We offer the proper sacrifice. You know what? That offering plate goes around, you know, or that people have been asking me this. I've never really had it, but I'm going to give something now. Because I hope if I give something, you will help me. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We try to complete the right task. I haven't been to church in months, but you know, it's funny. All of a sudden, stuff's not happening for me. Maybe if I go to church, maybe that will flip the switch with my father. But you heard it. And you hear it in other places, too. God doesn't want our ritual or religion. God doesn't want our ritual or religion. Ritual or religion is what we create when we turn the Lord's revelation and guidance into some kind of mechanical thing. What is crystal clear is our Heavenly Father wants relationship. Beloved, the Lord isn't looking to accumulate transactions with you to deliver goods and services into your lives. The Lord desires for us to be transformed through a living, loving, and intimate relationship with Him. Relationship with God is so important because that's our means to the good life. Relationship with God is our means to the good life because the Lord alone is good. Goodness flows from Him. From God alone, and it flows from knowing Him, receiving from Him, learning from Him, following Him. Our definition of the good life is you and I getting what we want. God isn't interested. He doesn't want to just give us what we want, the good life as we imagine it, envision it, or define it for ourselves. God's definition, God's plans are bigger than that. God purposes to give us the good life, and that means the life we were meant to live. The life that flows out of an unbroken communion with Him and flows into our peaceful fellowship with each other. All the sacrifices, the worship practices Israel learned, all the sacrifices and worship practices we learned, prayer, being in the Word, baptism, communion, they are not what make us good or even make our lives good. They are tools given to us by God, by the Lord, to remind us, to reorient us to Him as the source of all goodness in our life and in our world. This is important for us to hear because another thing that often gets misquoted, because this is a very famous verse in the Bible, as you know, is notice Micah is addressing those who are members of the community of faith. What I mean is, Mike is addressing people who are already in covenant relationship with the Lord. Mike is not addressing the world that does not know him. Mike is addressing those who are already in relationship with him. My point is, what Micah outlines here, get this, is not the gospel. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly are not how we are saved. They are not how we earn or merit the good life. No, it's coming down in the person of Jesus Christ that God shows us what the good life really is. 
Jesus acted justly. Jesus loved mercy. He walked humbly with God and he walked humbly as God. The good life is ours because the Lord gives it to us. He rescues and delivers us from ourselves. That's the meaning of the cross, right? That's the message of the empty tomb. And so what Mike is outlining here, acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly, these are not things that we do in order to be good. This is vocabulary. These are postures to help us recognize and, and encounter the goodness of God in our lives, to live out of our salvation from the Lord. This is how we follow in Jesus' footsteps, living out of his authority and power in our lives. How do we experience that kind of life? Not a life that we have to earn, not a life that saves us, but a how do we live that life out of our salvation, out of this relationship we have with God? And Micah reminds, Israel and Judah reminds us of what we repeatedly forget, what the Lord reveals to us, shows us again and again and again. It comes down to this, act justly. And I want, we've talked a lot about justice during the sermon series, so I don't want to belabor it. But I want to point out again, Micah says here, not that we are to believe that there should be justice in the world. He says we are to do what makes for justice. And that means acting justly isn't fundamentally about a political position or a social cause. Acting justly is first and foremost about reflecting the heartbeat, the character of God, the person and the peace of Christ in all we say and do. What does that look like? In short, acting justly is not to violate, but to protect and preserve the image of God in each other. Acting justly is not to violate, but to protect and preserve the image of God in each other. This means in how we conduct ourselves before and with others, family, friends, neighbors, strangers, enemies, through how we engage our community, neighborhood, town, workplace, government, national, global concerns, we are to speak out. We are to work long and hard and maybe even give something up for the respect, dignity, equitable treatment and well-being of all persons, of everyone who is created. justly to love mercy and you'll see these naturally flow into each other because when you live doing justice like God you end up loving mercy the mercy that is God it's inevitable because doing leads to being right the practices of one one's life create the habits of one's heart love mercy you probably have heard this but in Hebrew what we translate as two words love mercy is actually this beautiful like shalom rich deep awesome word it actually is this word hesed Hesed. And Hesed, if I were to try to nail it down for you, the, the intricacy of this word, the depth of it, is Hesed means compassionate loyalty and faithfulness. Hesed is love. Hesed is love that refuses to give up seeking the best for others. Hesed is the kind of love that refuses to give up seeking the best for others even when they have given up on themselves. Hesed is the kind of love that refuses to give up seeking the best for others even when they aren't being true to themselves. If you want to think of it this way, the Bible says God is love. Think of it this way. God is Hesed. Because Hesed is God's calling card. 
We see this repeatedly in the Old Testament and it gets repeated in a different way in the New Testament. That whenever we get God's resume, Yahweh's resume, Hesed is at the top of the list because it talks about the unconditional love and forgiveness that God maintains for thousands upon thousands of generations. This love and forgiveness that is greater, so much greater than the consequences of human sin. That's Hesed. My friends, when we are living Hesed, when we are loving mercy, we are no longer occupied with seeing that people get what they deserve. Instead, our concern, our desire, when we practice Hesed, is to give others what they really need, even when and if they don't deserve it. Extending and sharing Hesed is reaching out and helping those who are in need regardless of which way they rub us or whether or not it's convenient for us. And it's doing so not out of obligation, but doing so out of joy, anticipation, recognizing the inherent goodness of God that comes through when we reflect the character of God. Now, these first two, act justly and love mercy, man, they sound great. They flow. So this is a great little verse, but I want to acknowledge to the cynical in the room today, to the jaded, to the burnt out, or perhaps even those of us sitting here today who just have that tendency to feel the weight of the world on our shoulders. We might be saying, <laughs> okay, how can I know the good life if my mind and heart are supposed to be open to the endless needs all around me? You get where I'm coming from here? Yeah, act justly, love mercy. How am I? supposed to experience the good life if I actually let all that in, all the endless needs around me. I mean, let's be honest. I'm just keeping it real. I'm only one person, right? I'm only one person. I have my own issues and struggles. How can I possibly meet what's needed for the people I have at work, at school, in my family, let alone the poor and the struggling? I mean, seriously, isn't the longing for justice and hunger just as endless as the search for the self-centered good life? If I'm honest, I'd rather be self-centered. Right? And this leads us to Micah's final phrase. To walk humbly with your God. It's, in many ways, this last part is the glue that holds everything else together. You say, act justly, love mercy. You've got to have and walk humbly with your God. Why? Because walking humbly doesn't mean letting yourself get walked on or looking down upon yourself. It means not taking yourself too seriously, but taking God very seriously. Walking humbly is recognizing the privilege, the invitation and the opportunity of engaging this God who seeks to be in relationship with you. Do you even stop and ever think about that? We do not worship a God who created us and said, oh, a plaything, how nice. We don't worship a God who said, okay, I'm moving on to better and brighter things. We worship a God who creates us to be in relationship with us, who's present and active, moving in our lives, seeking to change us and transform us. This is an invitation and an opportunity. It's a privilege. Walking humbly is to recognize first and foremost that privilege, that opportunity, that invitation. Being in a relationship, in other words, with God isn't a one-off, right? It's not a once-a-week deal. It's not an emergency contact sort of thing. Hey, I know a guy, I know a God. If I get into a jam, I know to dial his number. Walking humbly with God is getting to know and trust our Heavenly Father daily. With each step 
by step of our lives with every trial and error and learning about ourselves, you know, learning about who we really are. And in the midst of learning about who we really are, learning about who we are meant to become in him. Walking humbly isn't about your personal performance checklist or what you can offer God now and again to stay in his good graces. Walking humbly with God is embracing forgiveness in exchange for your fear. Letting go of your fear and embracing God's forgiveness. Walking humbly is daring to be guided, to be stretched, and ultimately led into the best life for which you were created. Isn't that what you long for? Isn't that what you want? The best life for which you were created? Walking our, humbly with our God is, is not as much about giving our life to the Lord as much as it is living our life for and with the Lord. My friends, we come to the end of Micah and, and we hit this nerve. Because the thing is, we spent much of our lives searching for what is good, for the good life. Some of the best philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Oprah Winfrey, One Republic, <laughs> have all tried to define for us what the good life is. We're all looking for it, and along the way, we accept a lot of cheap invitations and false promises. We do this because the unspoken assumption of our humanity is we know by ourselves what is good. But what Micah point to, points to, what the entirety of the scriptures declare is goodness is not known or found by our own unaided thinking. There is no goodness apart from the Lord. We are no good. Life is no good without God. The good life is not defined by where you are. It's not defined by what you have. It's not defined by whether life is arranged the way you like. The truth is the good life isn't a quest you have to embark on. It's the life we were created for. But along the way, we have forgotten. And through prophets like Micah, God reminds us what is good. And but ultimately through Jesus, the Lord gives us the good life because he gives us himself. So my friends, as you sit here this morning, however this is coming at you, you can keep chasing what you think is the good life, the brass ring, whatever you want to call it. You can keep filling your lives with appointments and tasks and stuff, things to do and accomplish, and you can get sucked up in that endless vicious cycle. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you living in that cycle right now? You know what I mean? Some of us living the good life is working for the weekend, living for Friday. Woohoo! If that's your definition of the good life, what do you do only three days later when you've got to face Monday through Thursday again? But for others of us, the good life's a lot more than that. We're working hard for the good life. We're working hard to rest in hopes of one day getting to play. We're negotiating. We're bargaining. We're manipulating. We're scratching and kicking our way to the top. A pinnacle, by the way, if we ever reach, that will leave you nowhere to go but down. You know who you are. The good life for you is something you're working toward. Retirement, right? Some of you are just about to retire and now you're going to experience the good life. But if the good life is working for retirement, what does that mean for those who die before they experience it? What does that mean for you if you finally cross that finish line that you worked so hard to get to and all of a sudden your health goes out the window? Your money goes away. You can keep chasing the good life the way the world defines it. You can keep chasing the good life the way you think it exists. Or you can embrace the good life, the life you have in Jesus now. 
My friends, the good life isn't earned. The good life is experienced. The good life isn't something we have to pursue and find. The good life is a relationship we're invited to embrace and explore. I look around and I don't see just old people, I see young people. And some of you who are, you are young, you are just starting out your life and you are going to go for the next several decades on a, a ridiculous pursuit for what the world says the good life is. You're gonna try to earn it rather than experience it. You're gonna pursue it, grab for it in order to find it, and you're gonna miss the relationship that's right in front of you, a relationship you simply have to embrace, a relationship that will change your entire life if instead of thinking you have to find it, you get to explore it. You get to explore it, to explore this world that God has placed you in, this life that God has given you, this person that God has made you to be. It's not about defining yourself, it's about living out of your identity. Don't you want that? And for those of you who've worked so hard for retirement, if all of a sudden I'm bursting your bubble, don't be burst. While you still have breath in you, the good life is before you. And if you know who you are in Christ, even when your last breath is taken from you, the good life awaits you in a life eternal. The good life, my friends, is resting in who we are in Christ. It's honestly facing and knowing ourselves in him. That we're accepted. We're forgiven. The good life is abiding in our identity in Christ, and that means becoming our best selves, who we were created to be through him today and onward into life beyond death. Instead of working hard at our job as a means, as our means to our end, the good life is choosing to let Jesus transform our work into our play, his means to his end, to better this world, and in so doing, filling us with purpose and joy. Purpose and joy. Living the good life, not at the expense or exclusion of others, but living with those around us in communion, in synergy with them, flourishing together by acting justly, by loving mercy, and humbly following Jesus.